Holy and welcome. Thank you for being here, not just for our 17th birthday, uh, but thank you for being part of Flipside. You're, you're what makes it special. I was thinking about uh, this message today and what I want to talk about to celebrate our 17th year in ministry, public ministry. Uh, and I came across this passage of scripture that I want to unpack this morning. It doesn't have anything to do with a series or anything. It's just there's something I want to share. Next week, we start a series that I'm titling uh, Life is Not a Sitcom uh, and, uh, and a real look at life rather than what we see in entertainment. But, uh, but, but this one, I just want to talk a little bit about something God put on my heart. I don't think I have to convince anybody of this truth uh, that we all want to be thought well of by somebody. We, we all want to, we want someone to think well of us. If you're an employee, you should want your boss to think well of you. I know if you're an athlete, you should want your coach and your teammates to think well of you. If you're a spouse, you should want to be thought of well by your spouse. And even more just thought of well, you, you want to be desired by them. Children want their parents to think well of them. We, we want people to think well of us. The same is true for those with a relationship with God. We should want God to think well of us. And there's actually a, a passage of Scripture that tells us how, uh, what, what are the conditions are so that God does think well of us. In Matthew 25, the Bible says that while we wait for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom, we employ and invest all the resources that we've been given in this world in kingdom business so that it grows. And when that happens, God says, when we see him face to face, we will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. We should want God to think well of us. But I want to suggest something this morning that more than just thinking well of, there, there's something I want us to think about. It's a way to be amazing. How do we amaze Jesus? Now, let me, let me make this clear. Nothing we do can amaze God. God in his fullness is not amazed by anything we do. He's almighty. We should be amazed at God and the things of God. Creation, mercy, grace, his intervention in this world, the cross, a thing called love. Those things ought to amaze us about God. So I'm not talking about us being amazing to God. But, but I want you to go with me in, in, in a passage of Scripture and think about this. How do we amaze Jesus? Now imagine with me, put yourself back in the pages of Scripture. Matthew 8, Jesus is just walking down the hillside from a mountain outside Capernaum. And he had just delivered what is the world's greatest sermon ever preached and as he enters the town, he's met with an urgent request by a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion was a part of the Roman military who was in charge of a hundred soldiers under him. And this Roman centurion, who was not a follower of Jesus, who wasn't even a Jew, is a Roman military guy. And Rome was, was suppressing the Jews. Rome was controlling them. The Jews were living under Roman occupation and authority and this guy had a servant who was sick so sick he was about to die and so as Jesus comes down the mountainside 
and enters this city, he's met by this Roman centurion. Put yourself in the story for a moment, and let's pick it up in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, I, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. For when Jesus heard this, he was, what? Amazed. And said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This Roman military commander who was not a follower of Jesus, who did not know the Old Testament scriptures, amazed Jesus. This is one of two places in all of the Gospels where Jesus is reported to have been amazed. And it begs the question, what amazes Jesus? Now, this word amazed in the Greek is a Greek word, thuomazo, and it means literally amazed or marvel. Jesus marveled at this guy. 33 times in the Gospels, that word is used. Only two of those refer to Jesus being amazed. Every other time, it's about humans being amazed at Christ. What would amaze Jesus? When you think about who Jesus is, what would amaze him? If you've got a good Bible, the book of Colossians is in it. And Colossians 1.16 says this, For in him, in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, Christ, and for him, Christ. So what would amaze him? All things, visible and invisible, things seen and unseen, Created by him, for him, and through him. What would ever amaze him? Now, it's not appropriate for us to talk about how we amaze God. God is not amazed by us. Nothing's hidden from him. However, Jesus was, as we understand it, fully God and fully human. The word we use to talk about that mystical union is the hypostatic union. This mystical embodiment of the fullness of God and the fullness of humanity. Philippians 1 says that he took on flesh and was made in human likeness, fully God, fully human. And so it is Jesus' humanity that is expressed as amazed by this Roman centurion. What would amaze Jesus? Well, the thing that amazed Jesus is what he said, great. Now, I haven't seen this great faith even in all of Israel. The people are supposed to know me. So we have to ask the question, what made this centurion's faith great? You want to know? As I understand scripture, the thing that made this centurion's faith great is that he simply believed in the power and the authority of Jesus. And then he acted in a way consistent with that belief. It wasn't just the belief. It's the fact that he acted in a way consistent with the belief and the power and authority of Christ. See, great faith that precedes miracles 
is to believe on the power and authority of Jesus and act in a way consistent with that faith. See, there are many churches and Bible studies and Bible students who are convinced of the power and authority of Jesus, but who do not act in ways consistent with that faith. Faith for salvation, but not faith for power. I want you to note something. This Roman soldier was not a follower of Jesus. He did not know the Old Testament scriptures. He probably heard about the reputation of Jesus, certainly. He knew the stories. He had heard the people talking about what Jesus did in the past. But understand how profound this is. Without knowledge of God's word, just simply believing in the power and authority of Jesus, he made a request based on that knowledge. I don't understand who this guy says to about the Messiah stuff, the chosen one stuff, the God. All I know is there's something about this guy. There's a power and authority within him that does stuff. He believed it and then he made a request based on that belief. All the centurion knew. Just give me Jesus. I got a great need. Just give me Jesus. I got something that nobody else can help me with. I don't know the Bible real good. I don't know the rules and the tradition. All I know. Just give me Jesus. The only distinction between faith and great faith is to believe in the full power and authority of Jesus and to act according to that belief. See, there are many who were around Jesus who had heard his words. And there are many who were around Jesus who saw the miracles. And there are many who were around Jesus who actually knew the promises of Scripture. See, there are many who were around Jesus who were very religious. But apparently, very few around Jesus that actually believe the power and authority of him, and even fewer who choose to take action based on that authority. It seems to me there are apparently very few who would say, I believe in the power and authority of Jesus, so just give me Jesus. Do you want to know the other place in Scripture where Jesus is reported to be amazed? There's only two of them. What I'm here in Matthew 8, and the corollary to this story is in Luke. But there's only one other place where he's said to be amazed. It's in the book of Mark, verse six, chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus said to them, his own, his own hometown, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do many miracles there except lay on his hands on a few people and heal them. He was what? Amazed. Amazed at their lack of faith. It's the exact same word as in Matthew 10. Exact same word. Amazed. The only other time Jesus is amazed in all of Scripture was not at the great faith of an unbeliever, but at the lack of faith of those who should have believed. I wonder how many of us 
have heard Jesus' words. I wonder how many of us know the promises. I wonder how many of us have even seen the deeds and yet think, I don't know if it's real. See, we amaze Jesus when we believe in the power and authority of his name that we have access to, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, and then act in ways in line that, that is consistent with that power and authority. See, the power and authority of God has not changed. The power and authority of God has not diminished. The only thing that changes is our belief in our actions in accordance with that belief. See, what Jesus, I believe, is telling us here in this passage, what we learn from it is this, that faith is proved not by into, not in intellection, but faith is proved by exhibition. We don't prove faith in our intellect. We prove faith by how it's exhibited in our lives like the centurion did. See, God's work in our life is not solely dependent on what we say we believe in our minds. God's work in our life is dependent also upon what we do to exhibit what we say we believe. See, the way the scripture is written in this passage, right after, Jesus is amazed at the great faith of the centurion. Jesus tells his disciples, okay, now, fellas, we need to get in this boat and go across the Sea of Galilee because I got some business to do on the other side. And he tells them to get in the boat, and he says, we will go over to the other side. So the disciples get in the boat with Jesus, and they set out on the Sea of Galilee, and a great storm comes up. And they're caught in the middle of this storm. And the Bible says, if you're a Bible student, you know, you know the story. The Bible says that they're afraid and they panic. And they ask Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Or don't you care? What had Jesus just told them? We're going to go on the other side. Like, if I say we're going to go to the other side... Why are you worried thinking you're going to drown? Because if you drown, you don't make it to the other side. Right? We're going to make it to the other side. So why are you so panicked? I know the storm's rough right now. I know the waves are big right now. I know the water's coming over the edge of the boat right now. I know it's getting a little bit wobbly. I know you're getting seasick because of what you're... I get that. But we're going to make it to the other side. So don't you go asking me if I care if you drown because I just got telling you we're going to make it to the other side. And so in response to that, Jesus says, you of little faith. He just got done saying, I've not seen such great faith. And now he says of his disciples and those who follow him, you of little faith in direct contradiction to the great faith of someone who wasn't even his follower. See, the opposite of the great faith of a non-following centurion was the little faith of the following disciples.
I realize two groups of people here in this account. One of them were those who knew Jesus, who knew his words, who had seen his doings, but who didn't act based on the power and authority of him. The other was one who didn't know his words and didn't know his promises and had probably not seen anything done, but who did believe in the power and authority of Christ. One of those was a disappointment, and one of those was amazing. For me, it begs the question, which one will I be? Eighteen years ago, Shelly and me and our three sons left our home, left our friends, left our church, left everything familiar, and moved to a little community called the Ranchos to start Flipside. I'm so proud of my family. If you've ever contemplated moving away from everything familiar to everything unknown, we moved to a place where we didn't know anyone. We moved to a place where we had no family. We moved to a place that no one knew us. We moved to a place with no connections and no relationships. Our kids moved school and and, and started school not knowing anyone, walking onto campus blind. No one cared about us when we moved here. No one met us at our door and welcomed us. No one had a gift basket waiting in our kitchen. We sold our house. We left our church. And we moved to a place with no job, and no guaranteed paycheck. And in the midst of that uncertainty, Shelly and I accounted for the first $50,000 from the sale of our house and what we had uh, to start this church. To say it was scary is putting it mildly. And then most people in facing that situation out of fear would keep everything for themselves. And most people would try to insulate themselves from discomfort. But see... My family and I had read the Bible, and specifically Matthew 19, 29. And the Living Translation says this, Anyone who gives up his home, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, or property to follow me shall receive a hundred times as much in return and shall have eternal life. See, we believe in the power and the authority of Christ based on his word, that if we left and moved and sacrificed to follow Jesus, he was able to give it back a hundredfold. So based on our belief in the power and the authority of Christ and his word, willingly sacrifice home, friends, church, family, comforts. That belief would have meant nothing and accomplished nothing had we not actually acted on the belief of that authority. 
See, Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can what? What he actually says is, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can speak to this mountain, and the mountain will move. Apparently, the size of faith is not important. Because the mustard seed is pretty small. And in that region, in that context of where Jesus was talking to those people, it was the smallest of all seeds around. And so he says, the smallest of all seeds, if your faith is that big, you can speak to this mountain, move, and it will move. So apparently the size of faith is not important. It's acting in that faith, and that faith being based on the power and authority of Christ that creates great faith that moves mountains. Two things to pay attention to regarding great faith. One, it's important, the object in which we have faith. The object in which we have faith. Well, don't do you any good to have faith in the life and teachings of Joseph Smith. Doesn't do you any good to have faith in Muhammad. Doesn't do you any good to have faith in Buddha. Doesn't have any good. Do you any good to have faith in karma. Doesn't do you any good. The thing that makes faith great is the object in which it is placed. And God Almighty and His Son. The other thing that makes great faith great faith is that we take action in line with that power and authority. That's what makes great faith great faith. And Jesus said, if you have faith even as small as a mustard seed in my power and my authority, and then you act in line with my power and authority, you can speak to the mountain, move, and it'll move. So, by faith in the power and authority of Jesus, Right? By faith in the power and authority of Jesus, you speak to the mountain of fear and command it to leave. By faith in the power and authority of Jesus, you speak to the mountain of depression and command it to leave. By faith in the power and the authority of Jesus, you speak to the mountain of addiction and command it to leave. By faith in the power and authority of Jesus, you speak to the commandment of sickness and command it to leave. That's what the centurion did. And Jesus said we'd have access to. See, great faith that impresses Jesus is faith that is greatly exhibited. So friends, let me be real clear. This is one reason we start a flip side. To express great faith. And to see the kingdom of God expressed in the world. That's why we started this thing. To express great faith and to move in the power and authority of the name of Jesus. And to see the kingdom of God pop up in our midst. We want Jesus to be amazed by us. By our great faith. You understand? See, but see, this is different than why a lot of churches exist, I think, or maybe why some people go to church. See, many people go to church because they want to learn to be good people. Many people go to church because they want to learn to be better people. There's nothing wrong with being a better person. Don't misunderstand. 
But we got to be very careful. See, I actually heard a, a pastor recently say this. Jesus came so we could be fully human. I think that's dumb. I just think it's ignorant and stupid. He didn't come so we can be fully human. It's not about us. Like, I, I, I've been fully myself, and it's not pretty. <laughs> Some of my worst times are when I'm fully Carl. <laughs> like, I need to be a new creation. I don't need to be my full creation, like my full self. I actually heard the same guy say, God gave because he wanted to unlock human potential. That's ridiculous. It's just idiotic. That's not why Flipside exists. So we can be fully ourselves and lock our potential. Listen, listen, let me just tell you this. Don't ever try to live up to your potential. Try to fulfill your calling. There's all this talk about fulfilling your potential. Be Freaking don't. It's not about your, it's not about my potential. Like wipe away from your whole idea of my living up to my potential. Don't forget about, if you're a Christ follower, live up to God's call. He's put a call, here's what, here's what God does. God puts a call on our life that is so far beyond our potential that we need him to step in and intervene so we can fulfill his call. If it had to do with my potential, I don't need him. The flip side, we want to live great faith. And move in ways consistent with the power and authority of Jesus that we say we believe him and see great miracles. And I, I, I get a lot of people in church, they want to learn how to be good people, and that's okay. But Jesus didn't come and die and raise to make us moral people. Please don't misunderstand the purpose of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It was not so that we would be moral people. Any humanistic teacher can teach us how to be good moral people. Now, Jesus' intersection with the life will transform it into righteousness and godliness, but he didn't come, die, and raise so that we would be moral people. Jesus came, died, and rose so the kingdom of God could break into this world in line with the power and authority of the name of Jesus. So most church people... One learn how to be better, which isn't bad, but they don't exhibit great faith, nor do they move in the world in ways consistent with the power and authority of Christ. And what Matthew 8.10 tells me is this. What Matthew 8.10 tells me is that when Jesus meets one with great faith, he performs miracle, miraculous acts on their behalf. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this is the secret path to get a miracle. I'm not saying that if you do A and B, you get C. and That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. According to Scripture, when Jesus interacts with the faith and does a miraculous act on one's behalf, it's because it, what preceded it was great faith. Now this is of note. In Matthew 8, 
5 through 10, the centurion comes to Jesus and says, my servant is sick. I understand lines of authority. I want you to heal him because you have authority and power to do that. Jesus says in response, great, let's get it done. Let's go to your house. Did any of you catch the centurion's response? What was it? He said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. In other words, I'm not worthy to be next to you, and I'm not worthy for you to be next to me. I'm not worthy. It's interesting to me, <laughs> Jesus didn't argue with him about it. <laughs> now, if it were me, and I said, Jesus, I really want you, and Jesus says, okay, and I say, oh, no, no, I'm not really worthy for you to be called me. I would want Jesus to say something along the lines, well, you're not that bad. Right? But Jesus didn't contradict him. Jesus didn't say, oh, no, 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 listen. I came that you could fulfill your potential, and you're not that bad. Like, don't think that way of yourself. Like, your feelings matter, and I care about how you feel about yourself, and you're really pretty good. Like, you're a nice guy. It's okay. He didn't do any of that crap. The guy said, I'm not worthy. And just like, yep. Glad we got that out the way. I love it that there was nothing about Jesus that made him feel like he needed to make this guy feel better about himself. <laughs> I think there's a lot of lessons there. He may not have been worthy. And apparently he was not worthy. But Jesus doesn't respond to us being worthy. Jesus responds to faith. From the unworthy. We not, may not feel worthy enough for God to move in miraculous ways. And the fact is we're not worthy enough for him to move in miraculous ways. But Jesus never responded to the centurion because of the good that the centurion did. Even though other people told Jesus, oh, no, 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 Jesus, he's a good guy. He's done a lot for your people. You ought to do something on his back. That's what they actually said. And Jesus didn't respond to any of the good that the centurion did. He simply responded to his faith. Again, what made the faith great is that this unbelieving centurion moved in a way that was consistent with the power and the authority resident within Christ. That's all. And he said, just give me Jesus. I got nothing to bring to the table except faith in his power. So I will move in a way that's in line with that faith and that power. Just give me Jesus. This is what's important to Flipside. This is what was important to us 18 years ago when we moved here. This is what was important to us 17 years ago when we opened the doors publicly. I don't want the rules of religion I just want Jesus. I don't want the traditions of the church. I just want Jesus. I don't want donut shops, 
coffee shops and fountains. I just want Jesus. That's the heartbeat of Flipside. When we were here those first couple years, it was right leading up to Easter time. And there was one of the big, big churches that God really loves in Fresno that had yard signs all along, all over the ranchos. And I'm not going to tell you what church it was, but it's on knees. And their, their signs leading up to Easter said this. I vividly remember it. Celebrate Easter with us and Randy Travis. And I vividly remember thinking, y'all can have Randy. I just want Jesus to show up. Now, Jesus and Randy would have been pretty cool, but... <laughs> but our highlight of Easter is not Randy. I just want Jesus. And if you want God to work a miracle in your life because you think you deserve a miracle, I'm going to tell you something, you're not going to get it. As I see in Matthew 8, you must believe in the power and authority of Jesus. Unarguable, unadulterated power of Jesus. I'm convinced of it, and nothing you do or say will convince me otherwise. And you must go to Jesus directly. We have no intermediary anymore. You don't got to go to a priest to get to Jesus. You don't got to go to Mother Mary to get to Jesus. You don't got to go to some saint or nobody else to get to Jesus. You go directly to him. He, Jesus now. You must be humble about what you deserve. God, I admit it, I am not worthy. There's nothing about me that deserves this. This cannot be earned, cannot be bought, cannot be coerced. <laughs> Simply by your mercy and grace. Because there's nothing about me. And then you must move in ways consistent with the power and the authority of Christ. If we say we believe in the power and authority of Christ and don't move in ways consistent with that, we are liars and deceivers of ourselves. You might have faith for heaven, but you don't have faith for power on earth. You might have faith to get you into heaven, but you don't have faith for heaven on earth. And so... 17 years ago, we started this church to see heaven come to earth and move in ways consistent with the power and authority of Christ. We're not afraid to create needs for kingdom's sake because we got Jesus. We're not afraid to step into the needs of others for kingdom's sake because we got Jesus. We're not afraid of the messiness of life because we got Jesus. And so for the next 17 years, at flip side, over every need, we will say, just give me Jesus.
And for the next 17 years, over every addiction, we will say, just give me Jesus. And for the next 17 years, over every sickness and illness, we will say, just give me Jesus. And over the next 17 years, over every hurt and fear and anxiety, we will proclaim by the power and faith of Christ, just give me Jesus. And that will be our mantra. Just give me Jesus. So our challenge after the first 17 and into the next is to be convinced of the power and authority of Christ. To go to him directly understanding what it is we truly deserve relying on his mercy and grace and then move in ways that are consistent, like we really do believe in the power and authority of Christ. I love you. And I love doing this with you. And some of you in the next 17 years are going to see the miraculous hand of God and the kingdom of God break forth in your life. Because in spite of yourself, you've chosen to move in great faith. And I'm excited to see it. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've not asked us to be good enough. Thank you that you've not required of us to be religious enough. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, we believe. Help us move in accordance with that belief. God, you said that your eyes range to and fro about the earth that you might strengthen those whose hearts are fully yours. There are some of us right now whose hearts are yours, who are going to begin moving in line and accord with the power and authority that they believe is resident within your name. As we do, open up heaven as we do. Release your angel as we do. Bring heaven to earth as we do. Do what only you can do. With great faith, we say we believe. With great faith, we move and act with great faith. We speak to the mountains of fear and sickness and anxiety and addiction and we say, move! And with great faith, we thank you in advance that they have moved. We believe in you, God our Father. We believe in you, Jesus the Son. We believe that by your death and resurrection, you defeated death. We believe the Holy Spirit and your indwelling and empowering. We believe 
God, let our creeds not be anthem. Let our belief not simply be creeds. We believe. And we choose in this place and for the next 17 to move in ways consistent with the belief and the conviction of the power and authority of your name, Jesus. Your word tells us that when you are high and lifted up, you bring all people yourself. So God, through this place, we lift up Christ. Bring all these people to you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness and your mercy and grace to me and my marriage and my family to this church and the people of it. Father, we don't deserve it. We thank you for it. And I pray over the next 17 that you move in ways consistent both with your power and authority and your mercy and your grace in spite of all we've done and in advance of anything that we do. May you be praised. Love you, amen.